then it's going to take the skill of the individual who is understanding, right, these set of methods and criteria that, that you're looking at, and it's through that application of, of the interpreter, which is really we see the art of it. And God has uniquely blessed uh, certain individuals throughout the history of the church in this regard. Let me give you a quick example of what I, what I mean. And this, is again, is not exhaustive, but it's to help us to understand, well, when we're looking at a text, you know, how are we supposed to understand this? Well, in any time you're reading a text, um, you're, we're trying to understand the language that is in, particularly from the Old Testament. Is it apocalyptic? Is it poetry? Is it dealing with history? Um, uh, a historical narrative, I mean. Um, as far as history goes, we want to understand why the book was written and whom it was written to for the purpose of, which is most important, and it is the first essential need to accurately interpret the Bible because God, with intention, had each of the books written to whom he did for said time under said covenant. So you're going to try to understand the culture of the setting, the grammar, that is the language, whether it's Hebrew or Greek, and so on, so on with these kinds of things. It is a, what's called a formal process. But this is what we would want you to know about that process. Until the interpreter comes through that grid and system and takes it, that passage, through the scope of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, they have failed to capture God's intention. Now this is what I'm going to do for the remainder part of the message, in the sense that this isn't something that we made up as an elder board. This isn't something that we've looked past to, to another group to help us to to assimilate and ascertain what the scripture means, this comes from Jesus himself. So we're under a, we're under a safe umbrella here uh, together. The New Testament, as was mentioned in the historical reading, it helps us to interpret the Old Testament because the New Testament is the last given Revelation. You'll see an example of that when you're reading up the, uh, the opening words of the book of Hebrews. God who at various times and in various ways, okay, that's the thing I just described about a system, spoke to us by the prophets, now has brought to us basically his word through his son. Those authors of the New Testament, of course, would have been the apostles, those again who saw Jesus resurrected. So the Old Testament, I would say, if you were to give it a singular word, really are, are shadows. It is a shadowed picture of the redemptive work, not only of the person of Jesus, but also his work. But you'll see other terminology that's given to this, like types, and prefigures. 
You know the story in Genesis chapter 22 where Abraham is going to offer Isaac. What is that? That is a prefigurement of the picture of the father giving us the son. Some of those shadows are explicit, such as the one I just gave you. And some of them are implicit. When you're reading through the book of Leviticus and you're seeing all the things that the priest goes through to bring through the sacrifices, we see how Jesus fulfills all the aspects of the various offerings. Now, Jesus himself, during his physical ministry in the Gospels, really spoke to this. On one occasion, in John chapter 3, he was, he was speaking with Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus was a Pharisee who was a leader in the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin were 70 elder men who led um, Israel in both their theology or religion and their government. It was known as a theocracy. And Jesus, on one such occasion with Nicodemus, as he's describing to him events from the Old Testament, and Nicodemus is stunned, Jesus answers him this way in chapter 3, verse 10. Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not know these things? And we're talking about a guy who would have double PhDs in his understanding of the Old Testament. Jesus is basically telling Nicodemus, you don't understand what the Old Testament is about. So we know this is true of the, the Pharisees and the nation at large because the scriptures define that group of people as being stiff-necked and hard-hearted hard -hearted because they did not believe. But again, as, as Pastor Alex even prayed for, this condition wasn't just to the unbelieving heart, it was also to the disciples. Look at chapter 24 now, and I want us to move back in the chapter. When Jesus was with those two disciples, and he appears to them on the way, as he begins to describe and talk with them, Jesus says this in verse 24. He says, Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Now watch this. And Jesus says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Jesus is referring, of course, to the Old Testament, which is the only testament that they had completed, of course, in a written form at this time. He says this, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Jesus is giving an, an admonition to his, uh, an exhortation to his disciples. And he's basically saying, are you not so spiritually dull that you have missed what was clearly written about me? 
So Jesus strongly gives admonition to a Christ-centered hermeneutic. And here, he explicitly, in Luke chapter 24, reveals to us how Jesus himself interpreted the scriptures. Look with me again to verse 44. Then Jesus said to them, that's the disciples, These are my words that I have spoken to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Okay, let me stop there. The Old Testament, since its inception, has only been 39 books. So what Jesus is referring to, undoubtedly it's the Septuagint, a copy of it, what he's referring to there is that the 39 books of the Old Testament are speaking about me. And then, look at verse 45, he says, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he says this, and he says to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So picture this now. Jesus is in a room. He's with the 11 disciples. Of course, Judas has already committed suicide. And he's describing to them what the Hebrew Old Testament, those 39 books, are all about. They are about me. And then he says this specifically. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead. Now here's what's interesting about that. There is no place in the Old Testament where that's written. There's not one place where the words, thus it is written, that Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead. And yet, it is all over the Old Testament. And that's the point that Jesus, of course, is going to make in this 40-day period to which then we will witness through the preaching of the book of Acts how the apostles themselves will take the Old Testament and take the people that they're preaching the gospel to that they might see the lens of Christ in the thread of all the scriptures. Now to this point, again, as I mentioned earlier, a Christ-centered hermeneutic couples with Christ-centered preaching. Al Mohler says this, president of Southern Seminary, every single text or pericope points us to Christ. Now most of you know this, but for those of you that may not know this, the Bible was not written with chapters and verses. Those are arbitrarily put in. But they were written in paragraphs, pericopes. Every single text or pericope points us to Christ. G.K. Beale, who is a biblical scholar and professor of the Reformed Theological Seminary, um, 
draws a parallel between uh, Luke chapter 24, verse 27, to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And I just want to point this out. We're going to do it real quick. Hold your spot in Luke 24 and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Adding to the emphasis of that the Scripture themselves are about Christ, G.K. Peel argues this parallel. Look at verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And of course, we believe this. We believe that all of the Scriptures are inspired by God. This, of course, I want you to notice the word all that is used this, that is used there. And I, of course, and we as an elder board certainly believe this to be parallel to what Luke writes in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, where it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Again, that's the threefold division of the Old Testament. He, that's Jesus, interpreted them in all the scriptures. That is in every pericope. Jesus himself taught that the scriptures were about him. Now why is this so important? There are churches across the globe that are that are meeting this morning under the, you know, the umbrella of Christianity, okay? And, and let's, let's set aside Roman Catholicism for just a moment. Let's just talk about Protestant churches that are across the globe that get in the pulpit and don't offer Christ and don't offer the gospel. Now just think about that. Now, we go to church here every week, Pastor Alex and I. I can't tell you how many people have come to us through the years, even this last decade, where people saying, you, you don't know what's out there. They're going to churches and they're not hearing the gospel. Now, now to, to, to hear this, if you could just hear this, to, to make some sort of weird uh, illustration of this, this would be as if, you have this cold, clear picture of water, and you were to capture an individual in a desert that is, that is dying, literally, of thirst, and not offering them the water. The only clear and needful thing that should ever come from this pulpit is the accurate preaching of Christ. Outside of Jesus, we have nothing to say. <laughs> so let's go get Lions tickets. <laughs> the Lions winning has made me post-millennial. Think of the gravity of that. 
the only life-changing words are the words of the gospel. So I want to give you real quick, and I promise you I'll be quick. Four reasons why we preach Christ from all the scriptures. I'm going to give you four reasons real quick by application of this why we preach Christ from all the scriptures based upon the Christ-centered hermeneutic. Number one is because it's true. Because it's true. And yes, that would be chronicalized. That's the highest priority. We preach Christ from all the scriptures because it is true. And that Jesus himself taught Christ-centered hermeneutics, which would lead the disciples as he trains them for 40 days to preach Christ to the globe. Charles Spurgeon says this, that prince of preachers from England, preach you Christ and Christ and Christ and nothing else but Christ. On another occasion, he says, never was a man blamed in heaven for preaching Christ too much. In instructing pastors, Spurgeon said this, a sermon without Christ is like bread without flour. No Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. Christ is the worthy one. None of us. Everything else is coming through a filthy clay pot. We preach Christ from all the scriptures because all of the promises of God, the covenant, are found in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Turn real quickly to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll see this illustrated by the Apostle Paul, who of, cor who of course was instructed by Jesus to preach the gospel, and he remembered the words that Jesus told him when in defense of his preaching to the church at Corinth said this in verse 20. For all the promises, and again, I don't want you to think that's some vague term like promises. Paul is, is thinking of the divine covenants that God gave. Because that's all God's people has ever known. All of God's promises came through the covenants. He says this, for all of the covenants which God gives his promises find their yes in him. This is why it is through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. Jesus is the source of the promise. Jesus is the promise. We preach Christ because, number one, it's true. 
Secondly, it's because the church needs to be reminded. We need to be reminded. Because life is a long, difficult, arduous journey. Christ-centered preaching sustains us. It refreshes us. Because there's periods in life, you need assurance, I need assurance, and I need assurance from something that's life-giving, something that's genuine, something that will last forever, and that alone comes through the gospel, because in this life, your faith will wax and wane. It will increase, it will decrease, but Christ-centered preaching assures our hearts of the promises of the gospel. We need assurance. Secondly, church, we need cleansing. Yes, we have been forgiven all of our sin. Yes, that's been done and accomplished, but we need cleansing because Christians stumble into sin. We all do. And sometimes those forms of sin are egregious sin. Moses killed a man. David fell into adultery. Sometimes as Christians, we get trapped in our own sin. And the nature of those who are trapped in their sin, apart from going to Christ, is to run. So when you find yourself dealing with, with your sin, knowing you need cleansing, rush to be here. Rush to Jesus because Jesus is the only one who brings you a genuine cleansing. Satan will tell you different. He'll tell you different. Don't believe his lie. He tried to deceive Adam and Eve to get away from God. Listen, believer, rush back to Jesus. Rush back to him. We need cleansing. Thirdly, we need strength. We need Christ-centered preaching to give us strength because every one of us in here will face fiery trials. Difficult trials. Trials that will bring you tremendous heartache and grief and burdens. In some cases, you won't even feel like talking. Could be loss of job. Could be a life-changing disease. Could be the death of a child, a friend, a spouse, a parent. But know this. Leaning on Jesus gives the church the strength it needs to be the church militant in this life that God's called us to be. We need the strength. Where does strength come from? It's not ascertained to try harder. Try harder is moralistic. That's not going to sustain you. You need the life-giving message of the gospel. 
That's why we need to hear the gospel. That's why we have a season of a part of our liturgy as we've talked about much of confession and pardon. Fourthly, we need Christ-centered preaching for comfort. Does anybody really believe that any political party has the answers in the world? Are you serious? Could anybody be that foolish to believe any of that on any part of the globe? What will sustain? What will comfort? What's going to see you through life trials? Listen, the disciples, through Christ-centered preaching, most all of those, I think outside of the Apostle John, they all get martyred for preaching Christ. By the way, that just does away with the health and wealth gospel, doesn't it? Right, if the gospel doesn't work in Iran, if the gospel doesn't work in Afghanistan, right? There's no health and wealth going on there. People are getting killed. Then that's not the gospel. The prophets and the apostles got murdered for this stuff. I think the greatest dirge of my lifetime has been health and wealth gospel. has done more damage to the true nature of the gospel. God's not interested in you scoring a touchdown. <laughs> He's really not. Do we not think there are Christians on the defense? <laughs> it's just silliness. For, thirdly, this. I love this. Gospel or Christ-centered preaching will bring you and give you a deep, intimate joy. Look at verse 32. Jesus goes away from those two disciples and he's interacting later and, and, and they begin to talk. Jesus was at the table with them in verse 30 and he says he took the bread and he blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Oh, I wonder what that was. Yeah, you're right. It was the Eucharist. And their, look at this, their eyes were open, verse 31, and they recognized him. They saw Jesus as he vanished from their sight, and they said to each other. Now, now remember, because Jesus had opened the scriptures to them to teach those two that the scriptures were about Jesus. He says, did not our hearts burn within us? What's he talking about? He's talking about a joy. Now think about this. These guys were despondent. These guys were discouraged. They thought Jesus was dead. He not only excites them through his life, but then he teaches them that the scriptures are about him. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Christ-centered hermeneutics, Christ-centered preaching. It's going to give you a deep, intimate joy as you face and encounter all of the trials and the difficulties in life. Now here's the last thing and we close. We believe in Christ-centered preaching and the benefits of it based upon a Christ-centered hermeneutic. 
Because Jesus said it should be preached. The gospel of God's love. Look at verse 47. Once he has opened their minds in verse 45 to understand the threefold division of the Hebrew Old Testament, the 39 books that make up the Old Testament, as he reveals to them that the entire Old Testament is about the person and work of Jesus, we don't just sit on that information alone. No, we share it, dear friends, to people for Jesus says, repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. It's the gospel of God's love. Jesus taught the disciples. He opens their minds for the purpose of those individuals to preach the gospel so that people could repent of their sin and be forgiven of their sin and that that message, the gospel, should be preached across the globe. Jesus is the point of the Bible. Christ alone is the one that can save you. You and I both need forgiveness because apart from Christ alone, we will die in our sin condemned to an eternal hell. We proclaim Christ. We proclaim the good news of the gospel because we want people to know that their sin can be forgiven and that Christ died for sinners. Now, how is this to be applied? What's my human responsibility to this gospel message? The Reformed tradition has always defined faith in three ways. Knowledge, assent, and trust. So you find yourself in the predicament that I know I'm guilty. I know I can't save myself. I desire God's repentance. I'm repenting of my, my sin. What must I place my faith in? That knowledge in simplicity is that God is holy, that you are a sinner and sinful and you cannot save yourself and that Jesus will save you based upon his life, death, and resurrection alone for the forgiveness of your sin. You must have the knowledge of the gospel, and it is that simple. But that's not enough. You need to assent in your mind, listen to me, without reservation, without qualification, that it is true. That what God says about himself, what God says about me, what God says about Jesus is true. You must assent in your mind to that. But dear friends, I want you to know, God is my witness. I had all that knowledge all my life. Because I was raised in a Christian home. But until I was an early teen, man, I hadn't trusted in Jesus. You must take the knowledge of the gospel. You must assent. I believe that those things were true about Jesus, but until I trusted in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of my sin, it's in that moment that God will save you. We pray that everyone in this room will take Jesus by faith. Let's pray.
Our Father, now as we move to the enjoyment of this table, for God's people as it was intended, we thank you for, for Jesus. We thank you that you left us your word. We thank you that we can come here, not in our own wisdom, from this pulpit or in any class, in any home, when we open up the Bible, but we who are the preachers and teachers know we can open up this book because it's a supernatural book that changes lives based upon a supernatural message called the gospel when our triune God is at work to save. And that gives us strength. Give us strength for the task for all of our lives. Bless your people now. Lord, lift the scales for them off their eyes that they might see Scripture fresh and anew that it was really written about your Son. We pray and ask for these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Church, you may rise to receive the elements.